0: a few weeks away from returning to the cafe at Artichoke Music, so we've got to put up with other means. Lucky for us, I've got blues harmonica player and fabulous writer Kim Field on the line. He was with us a few years ago and he's back now because he has a new book on the legendary Chicago blues harmonica player Billy Boy Arnold called The Blues Dream of Billy Boy Arnold. It's in first person because he spent a long time in conversation with Billy Boy who is now 86 years old with seemingly perfect recall. Tales of Bo Diddley. Sonny Boy williamson and the whole panoply of Chicago blues greats. Let's get started. Here's Kim Field. Hey, Kim.
1: Hey, Tom.
0: Hey, what a book. Man. (laughs) Did you enjoy it? It's a page turner. It's a page turner for sure. Um, uh, How did this happen? And and uh, how long did it take? And well, I got a lot of questions, but how, just first of all, how did it happen?
1: Well, it was like uh, I had retired from my day job. I had a lot more time on my hands. I need I could talk. You know, I could sort of think about a writing project. I wrote a book on the history of the harmonica called "Harmonica's Harps and Heavy Breathers" back in the... Late '90s, mm-hmm. and uh, I write a new book every 25 years, just like so clockwork. <laughs> right? So I finally had some time to think about doing another one. And um, Billy Boy Arnold's a guy that has been talked about in the, uh, the blues musician community forever, like along the lines of like this guy has been there forever. And he yeah. remembers everything. And somebody's got to get these stories. Like that's the kind of thing you would hear about Billy boy. And I had never met him or even seen him perform until 2015. Wow. And he, uh, came to the West coast as part of a Mark, Mark Hummel, uh, harmonica show. And, um, they played jazz alley in Seattle. And I, I went to see that show. It was a fantastic show. I, Billy boy really impressed me. And, uh, at the end of the sh- and, And uh, Mark had me up up to join everybody on stage at this harmonica hell kind of finale. (laughs) And uh, I went, I went upstairs after the show to the um, dressing room to thank Mark for having me up there. And I popped into the room, and Billy Boy was the only guy in there. Oh. And and he looked up and said, "Well, that was some nice thing you did." And I was thrilled, and I found myself I quickly slid into a, a seat next to him. And within, like, three minutes, he was telling me about meeting John Lee's Sonny Boy Wimson in 1947. Wow. And when you meet Billy Boy, it's pretty phenomenal. He's just turned 86. Yeah. When I met him, he was, like, you know, what, 83 or something, 84, mm-hmm. and he looked like he was about 64, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's incredibly well-spoken, very smart guy, very engaging Uh and uh he he has been on the blue scene since 1947 wow uh, to the current day and so like there's just nobody like that anymore and uh even buddy he's got 10 years on buddy guy when it comes to playing <laughs> in chicago yeah so um and when you meet him you're just very struck by you know his his intelligence and his and his memory and so i kicked that around for another couple of years and then <laughs> Mark Hummel brought him through uh, Portland with another show at the uh, at the Aladdin, I think. Mm-hmm. And I talked to – I called Mark up beforehand and I said, look, I want to pitch Billy Boy on a book idea. And I was wondering if you would do me the favor of reintroducing me to him backstage.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and Mark said, sure. And so I went to the show and Mark uh, – showed me into the dressing room and introduced me to Billy boy. And I didn't want to overwhelm Billy boy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, backstage at a concert. I just said, look, you've got an amazing story and I'm a writer and a blues harp player. Mm-hmm. And I might, if you, if you're interested in finding a wider audience for your story, I might be able to help you. And can I just come to Chicago and we can chat about it? Mm-hmm. And he goes, sure. So uh, I got his contact information and I, I had the good sense uh, to call Dick Sherman, who's a, a, a Grammy-winning blues producer who I, I've known for years. He's a Seattle guy originally. And uh, I had Dick arrange a three-way lunch with me and him and Billy Boy in Chicago, and mm. I flew out there. Mm-hmm. And we went. We met at Valois, which is a deli that – it's one of Barack Obama's favorite eating places. <laughs> and it's also a big place for Billy Boy and yeah. – we got our food uh, and sat down at the table, and it's cafeteria style there. And 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 I I launched into my kind of tenuous sort of rap, you know, sales yeah. pitch, lily really boy. And he just he let me go for about a minute, and then he just stopped me and he said look, if Dick says you're cool, you're cool. So, like, how does this work? (laughs) Do you have a tape recorder or what? (laughs) Which I didn't because I was was only prepared to go out there and, like, sell them on the idea, you know? Yeah. And um, so I came back to shop a couple months later with the tape recorder, and we started. Uh, And then for the next year and a half, we had regular – conversations over the phone, uh, you mm-hmm. know, COVID, had sort of, you know, shown mm-hmm. up and, uh, I couldn't afford to make that many trips to Chicago anyway. And mm-hmm. so we did, we ended up with about, I ended up with about 70 hours of recorded. Wow. That's real. And then I had to spend another year waiting through it, transcribing it and then sort of picking the best and, and rationalizing some of the duplication of the stories and, mm-hmm. Things like that, and and then uh, assembling it in a kind of coherent uh, narrative, yeah, a chronological narrative, and then and then we we sold it like very quickly to the University of Chicago Press. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and Bruce Iglauer was instrumental in that because uh, uh-huh. the owner of Alligator, he had done uh, his own book with the University of Chicago Press. Bitten by the Blues. It's it's a great book. It's the like the story of him and mm-hmm. Alligator Records. Mm-hmm. And so he introduced uh, Billy Boy and myself to some editors there, and uh, they were like very keen on the project, like from right from the get go. Mm-hmm. So it didn't take long to really sell it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, then there was the a year long process of submitting the manuscript, having it copy edited. Getting the photographs straight and uh, having a printed book at the end of the year. So yeah. it just came out like um, came out on November 19th
0: Mm-hmm. What what kind of, of editing did Billy Boy do when, when you submitted the, the manuscript to him? What what kind of changes did he want?
1: Uh, well, I submitted, you know, uh, I I sent him a print out of the. Uh, he's not completely computer illiterate, but he's not really, he doesn't really use computers that much. So Mm -hmm. I I printed out a copy of the manuscript (laughs) and sent it to him before I submitted it for publication. Mm -hmm. So he reviewed that. And then he also saw the galley proofs after it had been copy edited, but copy edited by an outside copy editor. Mm -hmm. What did he say? Uh, His changes were very minimal. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, they were so minimal that it was kind of intriguing to me, you know, like <laughs> to be honest. Um, what the, the, the main thing that Billy Boy kept saying about the project in general while we worked on it for a couple of years was, like, you mean you really think there's a book in this project? He, he, <laughs> he, he goes, you know, I have a few stories, but I, I don't really see how that amount, how that equates to like a book length, you hmm. know, read. Mm hmm. Uh, and I kept assuring him that there was definitely a full-length book there. And I would prove it to him someday by showing him the printed copy. <laughs> and so uh, uh, so he, that was kind of his main um, comment on the project in general. Uh, he did make a few changes, uh, suggest a few very minor changes that gave me some indication that he'd actually you know, gone through the manuscript. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, he definitely trusted me, which was—I uh, felt that was a great, gave me a great feeling. It was a great compliment, but it was also sort of a lot of pressure. You know, when you're you're responsible for telling another person's story. Yeah. I mean, a, a key point I want to make about the book is that I am an—I was in no way Billy Boy Arnold's ghostwriter. Uh, the the plan that we had from the day one was that this would be Billy Boy's book in his own words, mm-hmm. like straight from the horse's mouth and that mm-hmm. I would conduct the interviews and edit the material. But I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I didn't, the only thing I wrote in the book was the introduction. The mm-hmm. rest of the book is, is right off the tapes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's a key thing. And then when we did sell the book, we were uh, actually were lucky, we were lucky to get it in advance. To and, uh, that was, that had a, a big impact on billy Boyd to get that check mm-hmm. you know not not that he's money hungry it was just like we talked and he said wow somebody really believes in this enough to put to pay me for it you know yeah. kind of it. Yeah. it put it on a professional level mm-hmm. and then when the book finally did come out and he got his author copies uh i think it, he was very impressed just at what a beautiful book it is it and is. what a professional product it is. It you know, is. like yeah. he, had, he had no idea what kind of
0: hmm.
1: slasher trade paperback or whatever <laughs> it might be or anything like that. So he, uh, he's very, uh, impressed by that. And I went back to Chicago last November, uh, right after the book came out and Dick and I visited Billy boy and we, and we, t- we got 20 copies of the book from the warehouse in Chicago and we took them to Billy Boy's house and I had him uh, sign uh, mm-hmm. a bunch of books to, to give to people who'd helped us with the project. And he made a point of telling me that he was very, very proud of the book and very impressed with the quality of, of the product. And he's he's been doing a lot of radio interviews and, and so forth to promote the book. And he's... Um, he said some very nice things about the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, the conversations, those kind of conversations range mostly around his career and stuff, but he's been, mm-hmm. he's, he's very proud of the book. And, and that's just a huge thing for me personally, because when someone entrusts you with their story, that's it's exciting, but kind of terrifying at the same time. And, mm-hmm. and, and uh, mm-hmm. You know, my greatest nightmare was that some he would he would not like it or have yeah. some objections to parts of it or things like that, and mm-hmm. uh, that's not happening. So uh that's a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. The two things that that, that jump out at you, uh, I, I'm sure that you've, you've uh, been asked this many times, and I don't want you to blow anything from the book, but uh, his meetings with Sonny Boy Williamson and the whole Bo Diddley thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Those are definitely like two high points in the book in, and yeah. in Billy boys, personal story. I mean, the thing that's interesting about Billy boy is that he's, he's a Chicagoan, he's an urbanite, he's mm-hmm. a city boy. He yeah. was born in the city. He doesn't come his up parents, in the Delta. No, his parents were from the South. Yeah. Uh, and they made the migration, but, um, he never lived in the South mm-hmm. and, um, he, became enchanted by his aunt's blues records, her Mm -hmm. 78 RPM records Mm -hmm. on the family. They shared a dwelling with his aunt and her family for a while. Mm -hmm. And she had a collection of blues records and he became quite taken by them by like the, we're talking like the age of five. Yeah. There was something about the blues records in particular. They listened to different kinds of material in the house, but he really liked those blues records. And, by the time he was 12, he had a paper, he sold copies of the Chicago Defender on the streets and he mm-hmm. worked in his uncle's butcher shop on the weekends mm-hmm. and he used his spending money to buy blues records
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: by the time he was 12 and he zeroed in on John Lee's Sonny Boy Williamson as his favorite, uh, just off the records. And then his father one day, uh, his father's cousin had a nightclub on the south side of Chicago and he said, oh Yeah that guy plays at my cousin's nightclub (laughs) and Billy boy was like kind of thunderstruck. He, (laughs) he said that he, he assumed that if you made records, you lived in Hollywood or New York or something. And, and it turned out this guy lived in Chicago. And then, so at that point, you know, there's the famous fabled story of, uh, Stanley searching for Dr. Livingston yes. in the wild in Africa. Yes. Well, Billy Goal is just like that in terms of <laughs> trying to track down uh, John Lee Williamson. When he, found he lived in, in Chicago. He he would literally stop and accost anybody he saw with a guitar <laughs> case. And and he'd ask him two questions. Do you know Sonny Boy Williamson? And how do you make records? <laughs> so those are that's, those are interesting questions because he's got a he has a quest mm-hmm. in mind. He's trying to find his hero, but he, he's also interested in the professional side. Like, mm-hmm. how, do, how do you get to become a musician? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he clearly had that in his mind, even as a young kid. And uh, he accosted a guy with a guitar one day, and it was Lazy Bill Lucas, who and he knew Sonny Boy. And he said, yeah, he, he lives six blocks from here, and he gave Billy Boy the address. And wow. he ran into the, he was working in his uncle's butcher shop that day, so he, he ran into the butcher shop and grabbed a pencil and wrote it down so he wouldn't forget. And then uh, he went back with some cousins and some friends, and they actually knocked on Sunny Boy's door, and Sonny Boy uh, answered it. And they said, we're here to see Sonny Boy, and they, he said, well, here I am. Wow. And, <laughs> and he invited them up, and then they had two meet. Billy Boy had two meetings with Johnny Williamson. And mm-hmm. he- Billy Boy had started to play the harmonica in emulation of Sonny Boy at this point mm-hmm. and, like, played for. Sun- and he found out what kind of harmonica Sonny Boy used and mm-hmm. saw that he had an amplifier. And and um, s- so he, he, he went out and bought his first Honor Marine band after that, because that was uh, the harmonica brand that Sonny Boy used. And then he went back for a second visit and got some tips on the harmonica and just kind of hung out. Went back a third time and uh, the landlady answered the door and said, uh, oh, haven't you heard? Uh, Sonny Boy was murdered. Oh my. He was killed. And so Sonny Boy was killed on the way home from a gig since 1947 and Billy Boy's 12,
0: mm-hmm. so
1: Billy boy you know you can only imagine how devastated this guy is this
0: yeah,
1: kid. yeah. He's, he's met his hero. who turns out to be a really nice guy
0: mm-hmm.
1: and like you know he's beginning to develop an actual personal relationship with him and then he's, he's killed. but it didn't really it, the cool thing is it didn't stop Billy Boy. he just kept going.
0: Right, and it didn't stop Billy Boy from playing Sonny Boy's music.
1: No, in fact... He still does, right? I I went out to the Chicago Blues Festival in 2019 Mm -hmm. and saw Billy Boy uh, do a great set there and he did three or four John Lee Williamson numbers Mm -hmm. in that show. Mm -hmm. It's... John Lee Williamson's style is still like deep in the heart of Billy Boy. That's... Billy mm-hmm. Boy's Musical Center is the Sonny mm-hmm. Boy Williamson style of the blues. And, uh, Billy Boy went on to do his own records in very in a very different style, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, that's still like the thing he loves the most that mm-hmm. he really cherishes, and he still uh, pays tribute to John Lee everywhere, and he feels very proud that he can do John Lee's material in a legitimate way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned the. Bo Diddley, yeah. uh, tale too, because Billy boy after some great Kim, story, Billy, Kim, that's oh, a great it's, story. It's, it's a really fascinating story and it's yeah. a real, um, important sort of historical. Yeah. tale As well, uh, culturally too, because it's, he, he begins to, he meets Bo Diddley, who's just playing on the streets mm-hmm. with a, with a guy, another guitar player and a washtub bass player. Mm-hmm and Billy Boy meets them and gets invited to play harmonica with them Mm -hmm. and then they see each other like occasionally and do some you know some playing again on the sidewalks they weren't playing in clubs or anything and uh, Bo was a construction worker and he was sort of doing it kind of as a sideline hustle But
0: he wasn't called Bo then
1: no his name was Ellis McDaniels and uh, so he just played on the streets kind of for some three kicks and some extra dough. And, Mm -hmm. but then in in 1955, uh, 54, he called Billy boy and said, I'm putting a band together to play in the clubs and I, I want you to be part of it. And so they were both, uh, well, Billy boy was about 19 and Bo was about 27 or 26 or something. Mm -hmm. So they started playing in the clubs and then Billy boy, uh, since he was a kid, was interested in records and kind of felt like if you didn't make a record, you really hadn't become a professional. So he was very determined to make a record. He had made a record of his own when he was 17, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as part of a session. And you know, it it didn't really go anywhere, but he had a record out at yeah. that, that age. So now he's 19, and so he he it's his contention that he took Bo and a little ass dub that Bo had made of him playing by himself in his apartment. Mm-hmm. And they t- he and uh, Billy Boy and Ellis McDaniels took that dub to the different record labels and tried to k- see if they could get, high- get signed. Mm-hmm. And they were rejected by a couple of different labels. And then they finally walked into Chess Records one day. Mm-hmm. And Billy Boy had met Phil Chess a couple of years before he kind of went in on his own and said, I'd like to record. He was like 16 or something. And Mm -hmm. Phil said, Oh, sounds kind of good but come back, come back later when you have more original material or something. So, uh, they went in there and Phil chess came out of the back room and, Mm -hmm. and Billy Boy goes, Oh, Hey, you know, Phil, do you remember me? So there was kind of a connection there and he played, they played this, this dub, this acetate for Phil chess. And, one of the things on the acetate was this, the kind of riff and song that became I'm a Man, mm-hmm. like, you know, blues classic. Yeah. There was also like an early version of the song that became Bo Diddley,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which was kind of had that hambone, bone, that yeah, trademark yeah. ham bone beat with the tremolo guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Phil was intrigued enough to say, can you come back tomorrow and play this for my brother Leonard? Hmm. who was kind of the real mover and shaker in the record company. And so they did that, and Leonard definitely uh, was intrigued by the, the boat. He liked the I'm a man thing, but he also liked that Bo Diddley ham bone beat. Mm-hmm. He, he heard something in that demo that really uh, attracted him, something different. you know. So he mm-hmm. he worked with them. Uh, in rehearsal, and then in the studio, he finally brought them into the studio. And Billy Boy, uh, without giving it too much away, Billy Boy describes how they really didn't have a song; they had a mm-hmm. riff mm-hmm. and a rhythm, and Ellis McDaniels would sing whatever lyrics that popped into his head, kind of. <laughs> so Leonard basically taught them how to create a three-minute song <laughs> in the studio and piece it all together. <laughs> and Billy Boy chimed in and helped with some of the lyrics. Yeah. And and then when they recorded it, Leonard stood right in front of Ellis McDaniel and would point to his mouth when he was supposed to sing and point to his <laughs> guitar when it was time to take a guitar solo. And they just they got this three-minute song out of it. And uh, it became... You know, two weeks later, they pressed it really quickly, and within a couple of weeks they had records in their hands. But they were stunned because the record said their song was Bo Diddley by Bo Diddley. So Leonard had appropriated the, type, the name of the song and given it to Ellis McDaniels as a performer name. But they thought it was going to come out as, as a record by Ellis McDaniels and the Hipsters, which was the name of their band. And so Bo not I, Leonard Chess not only was intrigued by Bo Diddley as a phrase, but he gave it to Ellis McDaniel as his stage name, and, <laughs> and that's what he was, was known for ever since. But, ever um, since, yeah. <laughs> but it, so that's like one of the first rock and roll records ever. Oh, yeah. So Billy Boy's involved in that, too. Yeah, yeah. And then, then yeah. he goes on his own as Billy Boy Arnold over to VJ Records and uh, records a song... That he wrote called "I Wish You Would," which is interesting. It's not a John Lee Williamson style blues tune. It's more in that newer kind of rock, rock and rolly sort uh-huh. of boatly kind of rhythm, uh, and it becomes a, a decent hit on its own. Mm-hmm. And he and Bo part company, and they they each go on their on their own ways. And uh, at the age of nineteen, with very little club experience and no experience as the leader of a band or the front man in a band. Um, Billy Boy signed to a management contract, and he, and he has to put a band together like overnight, develop a repertoire, and learn how to front a band. He's only 19 years old, and he talks about talking with Junior Wells, and Junior Wells is like, man, you're doing everything backwards. You're supposed to play in the club for 10 years and then make a record. (laughs) <laughs> and you're just doing it all backwards. And Billy Boy's going, I'm just trying to roll with what, what's happening. <laughs> and uh, but that started. So Billy Boy was a band leader in Chicago by 1955, and he's been doing that ever since. Wow. Uh, oh. it's, and and then he, he he he's such a passionate blues fan mm-hmm. that he. He says he made some very declarative definitive statements in one of the early tape one of our early interviews, and I used him as sort of a preface in the book, and he's like, "I don't embellish anything. everything I say is the truth. I'm not trying to make me look any better or anybody else look any worse. Mm-hmm. And this stuff is very important to me, and that's why I paid attention to it. Uh-huh. So when he's not he's not in the clubs, playing himself, he's in a club listening to somebody else, yeah. and um, Bill Greensmith, who's a British blues researcher, from the, he started you know, publishing Blues Unlimited magazine in the 1960s, he told me that uh, he and his fellow British blues researchers, who were the first people to start to document the history of Chicago blues in the 1960s. Uh, they they considered Billy Boyd to be the original blues researcher and historian because huh. he had such a uh, all-encompassing sort of overview of the music and he knew all those people and he was very serious about it like a historian from his historian. Yeah. Yeah. Or,
0: is is uh, this all from memory or did he write some of the stuff down?
1: No, he... it's all from memory. Wow, uh, I don't believe he. I think there were other people that talked to Billy Boy about book projects, but I don't mm-hmm. think they ever went and he got off the ground. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's off memory. Like there's a there's a chapter about Johnny Williamson in mm-hmm. the book, and at the last part of the chapter, Billy Boy is going through like his favorite uh, Sunny Boy recordings and the recording sessions that they were recorded at, mm-hmm. and he. He knows the A. He's talking about, you know, this was the A side, this was the B side, these were the guys that played on it. It was done in 19, you know, December of 1946. He's got the <laughs> dates. And he, he just did that off the top of his head uh, in the interview. He's studied that stuff so much. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I don't want to make too uh, grossly simplified a, a connection here, but it's kind of like, how you and I got into the blues, Tom, mm-hmm. you know, you got into it from the records and staring right, right. at the liner notes and reading them over. And, right, and right. who is Willie Dixon? He seems to write yeah. all these songs. Who is this yeah. guy? And then we tracked that down. Well, he did the same. The RCA Bluebird 78s that Billy Boy started collecting when, when he was 12. Uh, they, uh, they not only had the name, typically they don't have the name of the song and the artist, but they had the names of all the side men, yeah, uh, yeah. too. And that's where he began to look, you know, he paid a lot of attention to that. He memorized all that stuff and found out who those people were later on. So he's he's just a deep student of the blues, and he, he's just so passionate about it. It's hard to get him to talk about himself, actually. Mm-hmm. Wow. He'd prefer wow. to just talk about the blues. Yeah. And I... I kind of struggle like, as it became clear that this was actually going to become a book and that we had sold it to a publisher. I had to figure out a title and I was kind of struggling with it. And then I remembered this one uh, interview where Billy Boy was telling me about when he was like 14 years old, he would daydream about what he would do if he became a millionaire. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff that we do when we're 14, right? Yeah. yeah. And his dream was he would, ha- ha- you know, he would hire Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker and these people, and pay them twenty five thousand dollars to do a show, and, and he would <laughs> buy them all nice homes to live in. He, he equated it to like the uh, the system. Uh, he goes, it would be just like they did with the classical composers in Europe. You know, Beethoven yeah. didn't have to work; he, he was subsidized by the king or queen or some nobleman or something. <laughs> and that's what I would do to the blues people and. And blues would would become popular with everybody because when Billy Boy got into the blues in the late '40s, none of his contemporaries, none of the kids his age, listened to the blues. Right. Uh, and they were listening to Billy Exting Exstein and Saravon and the Orioles and stuff. And they made fun of Billy Boy for liking the blues. And so uh, he dreamed that. The blues would not only become popular with all black people, but all people in general. <laughs> and that it would become his dream that was that it would become popular all over the world. And and uh, these blues guys would become rich. Yeah. And and, and, and then he goes, stops and he goes, and it happened.
0: It happened. It happened yeah.
1: Exactly <laughs> the way I dreamed it. And they laughed at me. They told me I was crazy. So that, that's how I got the blues dream of Billy Boy Arnold on it. Nice title way, to, book. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice way to talk, nice tie tie everything together. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, um, are you are, are you back gigging? I've
1: done a few gigs. Um, I have a 94 year old mother that I help take care of a couple of days a week, and so my family and I have had to be really buttoned down during the pandemic, especially to protect her. I mean, we would have done that kind of anyway, but um, starting to resurface a little bit, uh, playing clubs, you know, where they ask for uh, vaccination, mm-hmm. for vaccination and, mm-hmm. and so forth. And uh, it's going to be really interesting now with Oregon uh, moving away from the mask mandates at the end of March. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still going to be fairly cautious, you know, yeah. uh, personally. Yeah. Um, but there are enough clubs to play. And I don't know if the, the clubs I'm playing in now are, are like ask for proof of vaccination. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to continue to, how much longer they'll continue to do that. But that, that's a good thing for me. Mm-hmm. And so I've had a couple of gigs this month and I just worked out a deal with, um, uh, strong, which is a really mm-hmm. nice venue that uh, kind of, started my band the perfect gentleman we had a Mm -hmm. weekly gig there before the pandemic and um we're going to be playing every other thursday there starting in in april that's great yeah so uh and then i'm going to try to book some other things too um and i've been doing some things with some other people i've got a show coming up uh, coming up with mary flower
0: ah
1: uh, someone i really admire and respect
0: everybody loves mary
1: yeah, and so uh, we're going to do a duo at Strum
0: mm-hmm.
1: on March sixth, uh, a sun, a kind of a Sunday thing that mm-hmm. they have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so I'm also kind of, and I did a thing with Lloyd Jones at um, Artichoke last week, and mm-hmm. had a really great time doing that. So I'm also having fun playing with some other folks too. But I think I feel bullish. You know, you never know if there's another, uh, you know, kind of deadly variant right around the corner but yeah, um yeah. barring that i feel pretty bullish you know and i'm and I, one thing I've, I've seen is like um is the audiences that are coming out for these shows as we start having music again are they're so keen and excited to have yeah. music come back they're starved like yeah and so uh, that's exciting too i think it'll be if we can just get an uninterrupted year or something, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. without some kind of interference, I think uh, it's going to be a really exciting time. Because I think people are, mm-hmm. we're not going to take it for granted. Nope. Neither the musicians nor the audiences the way we nope. used to before right. the pandemic, I think. Right, right. So.
0: Well, listen, Kim, thank you very much for, for your time. What a great book. Congratulations. Um, I've been playing Billy Boy on my radio show.
1: Oh, that's great. Well, that's the whole idea, right? It's like this book should, you know, the goal of this book was to incite interest in, you know, re-interest in Billy Boy's music.
0: Well, I've been playing Billy Boy and then mentioning the book.
1: (laughs) Nice. Well, I'd also like to clarify, people often ask me like where they can get it. So uh, my suggestion would be to go to your local bookstore first. Mm -hmm. Uh, Powell's definitely, I got a copy myself down there one day and, Uh uh, uh, there's bookshop.org which is sort of a nice it's an online um, website that uh, the proceeds are shared by independent bookstores mm-hmm. and uh, then there's of course there's amazon.com too and The response to the book has been fantastic. Well, it should be. Selling selling
0: wise. It's fabulous. It's fabulous.
1: Well, thank you, I I really appreciate that coming from you especially.
0: Sure. Well, thanks a lot, and uh, thanks for being here, and I'll end it the way we always end this, by saying, That's entertainment.